This is the California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 10. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One of God. from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 10th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I feel like we just started recording these and we're already into the double digits. Who would have thought? I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. We are a boutique law firm with a primary emphasis on First Amendment and media law, defamation, and of course, anti-slap motions. We've been doing this for more than 20 years. If I can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap, please give me a call at 714-954-0700 or contact me through the website californiaslaplaw.com or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. That's morris at toplawfirm.com. I'm usually brought in to bring the anti-slap motion or to oppose one where appropriate, but sometimes I'm brought in just to do a review and final edit of the motion, and I'm happy to provide that service. So feel free to call me if that would be of assistance. Now, today we're going to go over some of the interesting slap cases that came down this week and explore the law and reasoning of those cases. In a prior episode of the California Slap Law podcast, I discussed a case called Yelp versus McMillan Law Group. In that case, Yelp is suing McMillan, claiming it posted false reviews. I opined that time that the suit by Yelp may be one of the most ill-conceived actions in history. McMillan had successfully sued Yelp, and to show who was boss, Yelp brought this action, claiming that it had been damaged by the allegedly bogus reviews. As you can imagine, it's going to be very difficult for them to prove, for Yelp to prove, that they were damaged by these allegedly bogus reviews. And McMillan filed an anti-slap motion, which won't be heard for several months, but, but if the motion is unsuccessful and the case goes forward... Yelp is going to have to reveal all of its finances and perhaps even its algorithm. You can find that episode at californiaslaplaw.com forward slash 004 if you're interested. Today we're going to return to those rascally rabbits over at Yelp. In the Macmillan case, Yelp is arguing that it strives to keep its reviews pure and that its algorithm is designed to keep out false reviews. Indeed, it argues that it is damaged by false reviews because false reviews put into question the sanctity of the reviews on Yelp. Well, in the case of Demetriads versus Yelp, not sure I'm pronouncing that right, Demetriads versus Yelp, the plaintiff had had just about enough of that Yelp nonsense. Now, depending on who you ask, estimates are that about 20% of the reviews on Yelp are indeed bogus. So James Demetriades operates a restaurant in, actually operates a few restaurants in Mammoth Lakes, and he had seen his share of bogus reviews about his restaurants. I'm going to call him James because I think I'm butchering his last name. So James was sick and tired of Yelp claiming it offers accurate reviews, and he sued under the unfair competition law and the false advertising law to enjoin Yelp from making claims about the accuracy of its reviews. And he did not want to hear any more claims about the Yelp filter and how it does a good job of filtering unreliable or biased customer reviews because from his own experience, he knew that simply wasn't true. Now, this was a new way to attack Yelp, and it's important to focus on the angle of the attack. I get a lot of calls from prospective clients that they call and they want to sue Yelp because someone has posted a bogus review. Now, of course, that's not permitted under the Communications Decency Act, but James came up with a very different approach. James said to himself, 
If I can't sue Yelp for these bogus reviews, I'm going to at least get Yelp to stop claiming that they're not bogus or saying that the reviews are somehow trustworthy. I think it was actually a pretty brilliant approach. Now, I'm not sure that it will accomplish much, but at least Yelp won't be able to manipulate the reviews in the name of keeping them pure. Well, I can still manipulate the reviews, but it won't be able to claim it's doing it for the greater good. Now, needless to say, even though I'm saying it, Yelp didn't like James's idea one little bit. Yelp responded to James' action with an anti-slap motion, making two arguments. First, Yelp said that its discussions about its own filtering system are a matter of public interest and therefore fall under the anti-slap statute. Second, Yelp said that the motion was not barred by CCP Section 425.17 because, one, plaintiff asserted a personal stake in the case, and I really like this one. (laughs) Two, Yelp said that, hey, all the stuff we say about the effectiveness of our filtering system and the accuracy of our reviews, you can't take that seriously. It's it's all just puffery and opinion. Now, this is Yelp talking. Everyone knows a good percentage of our reviews are BS. So basically, Yelp was saying that no one is relying on all of these comments we publish, that we go through all these uh, steps to make sure that our reviews are trustworthy. So the trial court actually agreed and granted Yelp's special motion to strike, and James appealed. Now, before looking at the ruling of the Court of Appeal, let's let's set the scene a little. James was not just a disgruntled business owner unhappy with Yelp reviews about his business. He was a Yelp advertiser. He owned a restaurant called Rafters, and he paid to advertise on Yelp. He relied on the representations by Yelp that it works to filter untrustworthy reviews. I have no doubt that he he specifically signed up to be a Yelp advertiser thinking it would help him to keep out bogus reviews. A lot of people sign up for the Yelp advertising thinking that that will enable them to manipulate the reviews. And to its credit, Yelp doesn't let you buy positive reviews in that sense. You can't go on Yelp uh, as an advertiser and say, uh, well, I don't like that review, so I'm going to take it down. Yelp doesn't let you do that, but they do let you manipulate the page a little bit. They take off competitors' ads and that sort of thing if you subscribe to the Yelp service. So I have no doubt that James thought, okay, I'm going to sign up for the Yelp service so that I can at least... Uh, control the layout a little bit and and maybe keep it from being so bad. But after he signed up as an advertiser, Rafters received 102 reviews on Yelp. And guess what Yelp did? Yelp filtered 50 of those reviews, and most of them were positive reviews. In addition, a reviewer named Travis I made false statements about James's restaurant, yet Yelp's filter did not catch those obviously bogus reviews. James reported Travis I's reviews to Yelp, but Yelp did not take any action. When James sought to take action against Travis I, Yelp fought those efforts, wouldn't even provide the IP information to James so that he could figure out who Travis I was. So you can understand James's frustration. He signed up for this service. He's paying big bucks for the privilege of advertising on Yelp, and basically Yelp sticks it to him. So he says, thanks, Yelp. You know, I'm paying you for advertising. What do I get? You, you filter a bunch of positive reviews in the name of keeping your reviews accurate, but when I show you a series of reviews that are clearly bogus, you refuse to look at those. So, as I said, the anti-slap motion was granted in the trial court, and here is how the Court of Appeal for the 2nd Appellate District came down on the case. The Court of Appeal found that it all turned on Section 425.17. The legislature enacted Section 425.17 in response to a disturbing abuse of Section 425.16. The legislative history indicates that 425.17 was aimed squarely at false advertising claims 
and was designed to permit them to proceed without having to undergo scrutiny under the anti-slap statute. In fact, back when passage of Section 425.17 was being discussed, proponents of the legislation argued that corporations were improperly using the anti-slap statute to burden plaintiffs who were pursuing unfair competition or false advertising claims. As proof, these proponents pointed to law seminars that were being held showing how to defeat lawsuits based on the unfair competition law. Those seminars were encouraging corporations to use anti-slap motions as a new litigation weapon to slow down and defeat unfair competition actions. So, taking into account the strong policy of not allowing anti-slap motions to defeat unfair competition claims, the Court of Appeal found that the action by James satisfied both prongs of Section 425.17 and was therefore exempt from the anti-slap statute. First, the lawsuit was not about the reviews. The lawsuit was about Yelp's statements about its review filter. Thus, the speech being challenged was Yelp's statements about the quality of its business product. Yelp's product is the reviews posted on the site, and Yelp was claiming that those reviews are pure, gluten-free, grade-A reviews with no hormones, as it were. As to Yelp's claim that the comments it makes about its reviews are just puffery, the Court of Appeal disagreed. A statement is considered puffery if the claim is extremely unlikely to induce consumer reliance. Here is what Yelp has on its website about its reviews. Quote, All reviews that live on people's profile pages go through a, a remarkable filtering process that takes the reviews that are the most trustworthy and from the most established sources and displays them on the business page. This keeps the less trustworthy reviews out so that when it comes time to make a decision, you can make that using information and insights that are actually helpful. That's what they say on their own site. To me, that sounds an awful lot like a statement designed to induce customer reliance. Here's what the Court of Appeals said. If Yelp intended the statements as puffery or opinion, in the context of Yelp's advertising-driven website, such statements would have limited utility. Thus, Yelp would have no legitimate purpose in making those statements about its review filter unless it intended the public to rely on them. So that took care of the first prong of Section 425.17, determining that the statements in question are about the business's goods or services. The second prong of the 425.17 analysis is to determine whether the statements were directed to potential customers. The court very wisely concluded that Yelp's customers are not primarily advertisers. That's not really the customers of Yelp. Yelp's customers are reviewers, the readers of those reviews, and businesses that may or may not purchase advertising on Yelp's website. After all, without the reviewers and the readers of the reviews, there would be no reason to advertise on Yelp. So the comments about how Yelp offers accurate reviews is directed to those who read the reviews and potentially those who post the reviews. On that basis, the statements were directed to customers of Yelp, and both prongs of 425.17 were therefore satisfied. The claim by James against Yelp was exempt from Section 425.16, and Yelp's anti-slap motion should have been denied by the trial court. The Court of Appeal reversed, and James will get his day in court to argue that Yelp should not be able to tout that it is offering accurate reviews. Let's move now to the second case from this week, Douglas Gutterbaugh versus John Travolta. Again, to keep it simple, I'm just going to call him Doug. Doug was a pilot for Travolta from 1981 to 1987. When he stopped working for Travolta, he signed a termination agreement. And the big issue in the case is that there were two termination agreements, one signed and one not signed. There is an unsigned version that does not include a confidentiality agreement, and for reasons not important to our discussion, Doug claims that that is the controlling agreement. Travolta's attorneys claim otherwise and point to a signed agreement that contains a confidentiality agreement. 
Now, 25 years later, Doug has decided to write a tell-all book about his time with Travolta, and apparently that book is going to contain claims of homosexuality. So Travolta's attorney, Martin Singer, wrote to Doug in 2012, telling him to shut the hell up and telling him that his statements to the press and the rumored book would both violate the confidentiality provision of the termination agreement Singer claims is the operative agreement and would therefore expose Doug to zillions of dollars in liability. So Doug did what you should do under these circumstances. Doug is convinced that the unsigned agreement without the confidentiality clause is the controlling document, but he doesn't have zillions of dollars lying around if he bets wrong, so he filed a declaratory relief action to have the court determine which is the controlling document. The action doesn't seek any money. It merely asks for a determination from the court as to which termination agreement is controlling. The problem was that Doug is shopping around his proposed book, but Singer is sending threatening letters to any publishers. Doug probably won't be able to make a sale if this issue is not resolved. So no one could possibly have any issue with a declaratory relief action, right? I mean, if the agreement that Singer says is controlling is in fact controlling, then Travolta and Singer should welcome the opportunity to have that matter determined. If the court agrees, that will be the end of it. Doug will honor the agreement and everybody goes home. Heck no, that would be too efficient and logical. Here is the spin Singer put on the declaratory relief action. He said, basically, that he wants and needs to be able to send out threatening letters. He says to the court, well, I'm kind of known for my infamous threatening letters, and this declaratory relief action is really just an attempt to prevent me from sending out my wonderful threatening letters. He also claimed that the declaratory relief action would prevent him from suing for violations of the termination agreement. I really don't get that one at all. It doesn't prevent you from suing at all. You just file a cross-complaint. You're not prevented from doing anything, but that's one of the arguments he made. Not surprisingly, the trial court denied the anti-slap motion and Travolta appealed. The argument was really convoluted and a little hard to follow, but let me lay it out. People sue all the time for statements made in preparation for litigation, and since those fall under the litigation privilege, they are appropriate for an anti-slap motion. So that was apparently the knee-jerk reaction to this declaratory relief action. Here's the way it worked. Travolta pointed to the letters from his attorney Singer and argued that the declaratory relief action was a response to those letters. Singer is sending out letters telling potential publishers that Doug is subject to a confidentiality agreement and the declaratory relief action is designed to stop those letters. Well, of course the declaratory relief action is a response to those letters. He's convinced that he's not subject to a confidentiality agreement and the other side is saying he is. It's a perfect scenario for a declaratory relief action. As the court explained, the letters triggered the action, but they are not the basis for the action. The Court of Appeal concluded that the anti-slap motion did not even meet the first prong of the anti-slap analysis, and Doug did not need to show any likelihood of success. So there you have two interesting anti-slap cases from the past week, and in both cases the motions were denied. Marty Singer is not a stranger to anti-slap motions. He was personally sued for civil extortion and used an anti-slap motion to get out of that case. Stick around and I'll tell you a little bit about it. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to California Slap Law Podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, tune in or whatever podcast you happen to use. And until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. I have found over the years that in defamation cases, cease and desist letters are not very effective. Indeed, in the case of internet defamation, if you send a cease and desist letter, often it will get posted as a badge of honor. 
Look, world, I'm a troll, and I've upset the person so much that they hired an attorney. Look at this letter he sent me. But if you take that same letter and you send it with a draft complaint, that makes it much more real. The recipient knows that you've taken the time to draft the complaint and are ready to pull the trigger. I've had very good luck getting people to take down defamatory Yelp reviews using this technique of a cease and desist letter combined with a draft complaint. Marty Singer apparently uses the same technique, and he's kind of famous for his threatening letters. Last year, he got sued for civil extortion arising from one of those letters. A winner on the Big Brother show, Mike Malin, was alleged to have taken money from a business partner, so Singer sent him one of his famous demand letters with a complaint attached. It was truly awful, not anything you would ever send. In fact, at one point in the letter, it claims that the embezzled money had been used to arrange sexual liaisons with a judge and stated that while the name of the judge was not in the attached complaint, it would be included in the actual version. Malin sued Singer and his client for civil extortion, and they responded with an anti-slap motion. The trial court denied the motion, saying that this was not protected pre-litigation speech because it amounted to civil extortion under the flatly holding. The Court of Appeal reversed, stating that the letter had not satisfied the elements of extortion. So Singer won the day, but it was a long way to get there. If you're going to send a demand letter or a cease and desist letter with a draft complaint, just stick to the facts and leave out other threats, no matter how compelling you might find them to be. Civility can actually be a very powerful tool. When I'm asking someone to remove internet defamation, I don't threaten to sue them until they glow. I ask them to join me in the fight for freedom of speech. When someone receives a letter telling them to remove comments from the internet, their first reaction is going to be to scream censorship. Even if they know what they posted is false, they will feel like they have the God-given right as an American to post it. So I write and say, here is the complaint and the allegations as I know them. If I've been misinformed, then please contact me immediately. I I certainly won't pursue this action if the facts you've stated in your review are correct. On the other hand, if you can't prove that my client is on the FBI's most wanted list, and if you can't prove that my client in from his past 10 employers, then freedom of speech is best served by taking down those false statements. Work with me on this. I mean, think what a world it would be if you can't believe everything you read on the internet. We all need to work together to keep the internet free from falsity. Using this tone has proven to be far more effective than the usual threatening letters because it gives the defendant a way to save face. They're not giving in to a threat. They're working with me to promote a free and vibrant marketplace of ideas. And if they do publish my letter on the Internet, all it says is that if you can prove what you're saying, I won't pursue the case. Who would object to that? It takes away their ability to be a victim. Mama always says you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. A cease and desist letter does not have to be threatening. Have a great week.